Hey, doll. Hey, doll. I'm your host, Paula. And I'm your host, Cynthia. And we are Dolls Dolls and Doom. Doom. Paula, you're going to tell us a story today? I am. Who are you going to tell us about? Well, I actually have two stories, but I promise you they do connect. Okay. These are the stories of Judith Barcy and Jeffrey McDonald. Now, first off, I want to warn you, these stories have violence towards children. I know it can be hard to listen to, especially for mothers, so I wanted to warn you ahead of time. The name Judith Barcy may not ring any bells on its own, but what about the movies All Dogs Go to Heaven? Or Land Before Time? Oh, Land Before Time was one of my favorites. It's still one of my favorites. Right? It's so cute. It's so sad. Oh, definitely. And I'm sure other Gen Xers like me remember that little cute voice of Ducky saying, yep, yep, yep. Oh, Ducky. (laughs) So cute. Well, that little voice belonged to Judith Barcy. Judith's parents, Joseph and Maria, both fled Hungary back in 1956, but they did not meet until after they moved to California. Maria was a waitress in a diner, and Joseph came in and basically swept Maria off her feet. And the fact that he would drop $100 bills to pay for his food didn't hurt. She came from a lower-class family and saw this as security. They okay, got- I just have to interrupt you oh, for a second. Do. Because <laughs> my mom tells a story about how when she went on a first date with my dad, he paid for the meal with, like, a $50 bill. Ooh. And she just thought... Whoa, I have made it now, Mr. <laughs> Moneybags. And that's what that reminded me of, the fact that he dropped $100 bills. So Yeah, it makes an impression. <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> sure. Let me just pull out my wad of cash here. Right. I got this. <laughs> yeah. It's not a problem. <laughs> they got married, and on June 6, 1978, Judith Eva Barcy was born. She was a petite bundle of cuteness, blonde hair and blue eyes. One day while skating in a roller rink in San Fernando Valley, she was discovered by a film crew that was shooting a commercial. At five, she was so petite, she was mistaken for a three-year-old. She soon became a commercial actress, appearing in over 70 commercials. The first one she did was for Donald Duck Orange Juice. I don't know about you, but I do not remember this OJ. Me neither, but I wish I did. I love Donald Duck. (laughs) I kind of want to Google and see if we can find the commercial. Oh yeah, let's do it. Yeah. While filming a commercial for Campbell's Soup one day, she did so many takes with tomato, she never ate it again. Judith's first big role was in Jaws, The Revenge. Fun fact, the swimsuit she wore in this movie was her own. She also appeared in many TV shows, such as Knott's Landing, Growing Pains, Cheers, and Punky Brewster. Most memorable was her voice work as Anne Marie in All Dogs Go to Heaven and as Ducky in Land Before Time. Ducky was her favorite role, and she loved working with Don Bluth and wanted to do more projects with him in the future, and the feeling was mutual. Bluth admired Judith and sang of her, quote, absolutely astonishing. She understood sophisticated situations. In all appearances, Judith had a happy childhood. She enjoyed her job, and while she had little time for a social life, she did have one friend and often went swimming with her in her pool. Her friend's mother described Judith as, quote, adorable, quite precious. Her mother taught her to be so polite. By the time she was in fourth grade, Judith was making an estimated $100,000 per year. Her income allowed her family to move into a four-bedroom house in West Hills, California. At 10 years old, Judith was short for her age, standing at only 3 feet 8 inches. 
she was actually taking injections to encourage growth. At 10, she was still playing seven and eight years old, which can be a good thing career-wise. Oh, for sure. As an actor, like to look younger, um, really just kind of stretches out your um, your options for the characters you could play. For sure, that's a good thing. Oh, definitely. Yeah, to be ambiguous, age-wise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The longer you can do it. Yeah. While her career was on a high, her home life was quite the opposite. Her father Joseph quit his job as a plumber and began drinking heavily. It was so bad he got three DUIs. He was angry all the time and made threats towards his family. Maria even made a report, but as there was no physical damage done, she didn't press any charges. After this, Joseph supposedly stopped drinking, but the threats continued. And the threats were horrifying. He'd say things like he would cut their throats and burn the house down. My goodness. Yeah, that's extreme. That's terrifying. Judith told her friend that her father was throwing pots and pans and that's why she had a nosebleed. A neighbor said that Joseph got her a little pink TV as an apology for yanking her hair. Okay, so these are like really serious accusations. Yeah, it's not just like, oh, we got in a fight and daddy accidentally hit me. Right, you got a nosebleed because your dad threw a pot or pan at you and yanked your hair like that? That mother should have got her out of there immediately. Yes, I completely agree. Needless to say, Joseph had a temper. He would go off easily, especially when he was drunk. A former coworker of Joseph said, Joseph told him he threatened to kill his wife about 500 times. When the coworker asked about his little girl, Joseph said, I'd have to kill her too, end quote. A once happy, bubbly little girl began to change. Judith gained weight and began to show signs of disturbing behavior. She would bite her nails, pull out her eyelashes and eyebrows, and even pull out her cat's whiskers. In May of 1988, after a meltdown in front of her agent, Ruth Hansen, her mother Maria took her to a child psychologist who diagnosed Judith with severe emotional abuse and actually reported her diagnosis to Child Protective Services. Unfortunately, it didn't go anywhere because Maria claimed she was going to divorce Joseph. She and Judith were going to move into an apartment that she had already rented and she would spend her days just to escape her husband. On Monday, July 25th, Judith missed an audition with Hanna-Barbera for an upcoming cartoon TV series. That same day, Joseph called Ruth Hansen, again, this is Judith's agent, saying a big car had come to take in Judith and Maria to San Diego. Tuesday the 26th, he called her again, saying he was going to move out of the house and wanted to stay long enough to say goodbye to his wife and daughter. On Wednesday 27th at 8.30 a.m., the next-door neighbor, Eunice Daly, was outside watering her plants in her garden when she heard a loud bang. She went inside and called the police and said, quote, I heard an explosion and I saw smoke rising from the house. She also said, quote, My first thought was, as I ran inside to call 911, he's done it. He killed them and set fire to the house, just like he said he would, end quote. Judith was found in her bed and Maria in the hall. Both had been shot in the head and gasoline poured over their bodies. Joseph was found in the garage, also shot in the head, a 32 caliber pistol in his hand and a gas can just four feet from his body. Another neighbor took Daly's hose from her garden through the Barisi sliding glass door and tried to put out the flames, but he could not get through the smoke. A new show called Murder House Flip which is totally something I'd watch. Oh, me too. <laughs> right? Shows the Bernal family moved into the Barisi home back in 2001. They said they were not initially told of the tragic story of the house. 
which if I'm not mistaken, isn't that illegal? I always thought that you had to disclose murders and things like that in a house, but it may vary by state. Oh, yeah, I could see that. I think it might vary by state. So anyway, they noticed strange activity, such as the garage door going up and down on its own, hearing footsteps in the living room, and a general feeling of being watched. Francisco, the father, said he felt like someone was behind him when he walked down the hallway and Judith's room is always cold. There's no denying Judith was a talented, sweet, and polite little girl. Who knows where she would have been today? The song Love Survives that plays over the end credits of All Dogs Go to Heaven was dedicated to Judith by the cast and crew. That's so awful. I know, it's so sad. What a horrific man. I mean, we hear lots of stories of men killing their families, but I mean to... He just seemed especially violent, especially cruel to say, oh, I guess I'd have to kill her too, about his own daughter and like setting fire to their body. I just, oh, he sounds like a really, really awful person. Yeah. And that poor little girl to have to live with those kind of threats. I know. Oh, you should be safe as a child. Children yeah. should be safe. And especially your, your parents. parents. Those are the people that are supposed to love you and take care of you no matter what. I can't imagine how scary that must be. I fortunately don't have to, never had to deal with that, being afraid of my own parents. But I cannot imagine. Like, life is hard, and childhood can be hard because, you know, things are scary. And I can't imagine not having a safe place to be. Right. And maybe that's one of the reasons she loved her job so much is because that was her escape from it. That's heartbreaking. The sad fact is, the social welfare system has more trouble dealing with emotional distress than physical abuse. How can you protect someone from threats? Yeah, I don't really have any experience with, you know, family services or anything like that. Um, I've never dealt with them personally. But a normal person doesn't threaten their kids. Right. To that extent. Like, I've never threatened to kill my kids. I've never threatened to hurt my children. Right. I've just never... You know, I I just, I don't know. To me, if someone says they're going to hurt their kids, that's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Those are like the the three people in the world that I can promise you I would never hurt. Yeah. doesn't mean I never get angry, but, you know. There's a difference between I'm angry and I'm going to slit your throat. Right. (laughs) Oh, yes, for sure. Helen Kleinberg, a member of Watchdog Commission for Child Services, said... It's frightening because it appears that people on the outside took the right steps and we didn't manage it. She is upset that the department closed Judith's case and was quoted saying, from my point of view, the child is the client, not the mother. Now, I just want to point out that several people tried to reach out and help. Her agent, Ruth, and her neighbors offered to have Maria and Judith come and stay with them. But how many times can you offer? It's so tricky because you can't force someone to move out of their home, especially when you know they've rented an apartment and are actively staying there during the day. Maria talked about getting a divorce, so it sounded like she was taking action. If you're worried about a child, even if you're unsure, you can contact a professional at 0808-800-5000 or email them at help at nspcc.org.uk. And I would say, if there's any question at all, report it. Like, if... 
if I knew that a child was being abused or threatened to be abused and, you know, the mother had an apartment to escape during the day, but they were going home at night, I, I just, I don't know that that would be enough for me. I mean, I don't know what I'd be able to do other than make some phone calls, but. Right. And I think that's why they have wellness checks because it doesn't, you know, take a whole lot of effort to go and at least check on them. Right. And better safe than sorry. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's really sad. That's a really sad case. I'm sure everybody involved was really, really affected by that and felt like maybe they could have possibly done more. Like, like looking back, I bet they could have, I bet they said to themselves, I I wonder if I could have done more. Yeah. Or I wish I had stepped in. Right. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So the movie Judith was in was called Fatal Vision, and that was based on a true and tragically similar story. Jeffrey McDonald was the second of three children born to Robert and Dorothy. They grew up in a poor home. Robert was a strict father and expected achievement from his children. At the end of eighth grade, Jeffrey met Colette Stevenson and briefly dated. After high school, he attended Princeton University and was pre-med. In his second year, he and Colette began dating again. The couple married September 14, 1963, Colette already pregnant with their first child. On April 18, 1964, daughter Kimberly was born. Their second child, another daughter, Kristen, was born May 8, 1967. In 1968, Jeffrey graduated medical school and July 1969, joined the U.S. Army and later joined the Green Berets as a physician, which meant it was doubtful he would have to serve overseas. In September, he was assigned at Fort Bragg in the 3rd Special Forces Group, where he was then joined by his wife and kids. They moved into a section of the base specifically for married officers. In December of 1969, Colette was now pregnant with their third child, a boy due in July. On February 17, 1970, 3.42 a.m., dispatch received an emergency call from Jeff's house. Minutes later, the military police arrived. The house was dark and the front door was locked. They entered from the back door. They went into the master bedroom first. They found Colette on the floor on her back. It was clear she had been severely beaten, both forearms broken, most likely from trying to shield her face. She was stabbed 21 times in the chest with an ice pick and 16 times on the neck, chest with a knife. Whoa. Yeah. That is major overkill. Yeah. That's insane. That's excessive. Okay. There was a torn and bloody pajama top draped over her chest. On the headboard was the word pig written in blood. It was later determined the blood belonged to Colette. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Jeffrey was on the floor next to her, injured, but still alive. He told police to check on his kids. Two-year-old Kristen was found on her left side, 33 stab wounds on her chest, neck, hands, and back with a knife, and 15 times with an ice pick. Okay. Clearly Jeffrey did this. (laughs) Spoiler alert. I mean, I don't know yet, but this is, these are, this is... A passionate, passionate crime. Yeah. A two-year-old is stabbed more than 50 times with two different... Instruments. Ugh. All right. Tell me more. Okay. Five-year-old Kim was on her left side, had a fractured skull from the blows to her head, and a blow so hard to her face that her cheekbone was protruding from the skin. Oh, my God. Jeffrey's injuries were far less severe than his family's. He had cuts, bruises, fingernail scratches on his face, and a chest and single stab wound between two ribs, causing his lung to partially collapse, 
and a mild concussion. He was hospitalized for nine days. And he was a physician who would know exactly how to stab himself and not kill himself. Correct. Okay, keep going. All right. I think I know how this one ends. (laughs) Now, according to Jeff, here's what happened. Everybody but him was asleep. He took a blanket from Kristen's room and fell asleep on the couch. Later, he awoke to Colette screaming, Jeff, help. Why are they doing this to me? On the way to the bedroom, someone attacked him. Three males. He noticed one of them had surgical gloves, and there was one girl who just held a candle and kept saying, quote, Acid is groovy. Kill the pigs. She had long blonde hair, high-heeled boots, and a white floppy hat. She wasn't physically participating, however, while the three men were attacking Jeff with an ice pick and a club, she said, hit him again. Jeff said this is when his pajama top was pulled off and he bound it up and used it to block the blows from the ice pick. He was eventually knocked unconscious. When he came to, he checked the bedrooms, attempting mouth-to-mouth. In May, the Army charges Jeff McDonald with three counts of murder. In October, an investigator for the Army requests that the charges be dropped and they investigate a woman named Helena Stockley, otherwise known as the woman in the white floppy hat. A few weeks later, the Army says there is not enough evidence to court Marshal McDonald, and in December, Jeff is honorably discharged. He moves to New York and works as a doctor. In January 75, the federal grand jury in Raleigh indicts McDonald on three counts of murder. In 1979, Jeff meets author Joe McGinnis and wants him to write a book depicting him as an innocent man. Meanwhile, in July of 79, trial in Raleigh begins, and in August, he is found guilty. First degree for killing his wife and second degree for killing his kids. In July 1980, his conviction is overturned by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals due to lack of a speedy trial and is released from prison a month later. But in March 1982, the U.S. Supreme Court reverses it and he is sent back to prison. In August of 83, a book titled Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis comes out, and it's the opposite of what Jeff McDonald was expecting. In fact, it paints him as a guilty man. So he sues McGinnis, and the publishing company settles in court. In 1984, the miniseries by the same name, Fatal Vision, comes out. The one little Judith Barcy was in. I told you these two stories would connect. Wow. In August 2002, Jeff marries Catherine, I'm going to butcher this name, Kurek Kurich, in federal prison. They meet after she wrote to him asking how she can help prove him innocent. Later that year, he applied for a parole hearing for the first time, but it was denied. He is currently serving his life sentence in Maryland. He still claims he's wrongly convicted and has exhausted all possibilities for a new trial. As you can tell, there's a lot of back and forth with Jeff McDonald, and to get a better picture and more detail, I recommend watching the documentary that came out earlier this year, A Wilderness of Errors. There's a lot of layers to this case. Ooh, I will definitely watch that. It's really good. Is it? How do I watch it? That's on Hulu. Okay. All right. I'll watch it today. Tonight. (laughs) There you go. I think there's like six episodes. Do you think he did it? At first I did, but Mm -hmm. then when they started, you know, really peeling the onion back, it really made him look innocent. Okay. All right. Because just from what you've told me, I would say he sounds guilty. To me, that just, that is a hateful, hateful, hateful crime. Yeah. There's a lot of anger involved in that. Right. You don't have to stab a two-year-old 32 times. You don't have to hit a five-year-old so hard that her bone protrudes from her face. Exactly. 
stab somebody. But it is strange that there's two different murder weapons. That's strange. Right. If it's true that there was three different people attacking him, there would be at least two different murder weapons. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it's strange two different murder weapons if he murdered them. Right. Like, what would he do? Stop with a knife and then go look for an ice pick? Right. So that part, mm, I'm going to have to do more research yeah. in this case. Yeah, I really recommend A Wilderness of Errors. Okay, I will check it out. I'll watch the movie, too, with Judith Garcia. That's Garcia. right. Yeah. Fatal Vision. Um, going back to that TV show, The Murder House Flip, would you live in a house that you knew somebody had been murdered in? I don't think that I could, but it also, well, I really don't think that I could. I think I'd be too much of a chicken. I'd be convinced that spirits would haunt me or I'd have that cold room or hear footsteps or like a light going on and off and I'm not the one doing it. Okay. Would you live in a house that you knew someone died in? If it was natural causes and it wasn't murder, yeah, I I think I could do that. Okay. Because my um, childhood home, I believe the previous owner died in my bedroom of natural causes of old age. She just died in bed. Um, and I've lived in homes where, um, you know, someone died of natural causes, died in that room. Never once even thought about it. Didn't bother me at all. But if I knew someone was murdered in a house, that might bother me. Not because I'd be specifically afraid of like spirits or anything, but just, I don't know, just to know something so evil happened in that spot. I understand that would be kind of freaky but like what if you got like what if it was like like american horror story the first season where it was like this amazing amazing home and it was dirt cheap oh there's a reason it's dirt cheap (laughs) it's haunted (laughs) right right but like that would be hard for me because i love real estate and i love like old beautiful big houses so if you know, one became available and it was in my price range and it like ticked all the boxes for everything I wanted, but somebody just happened to have been murdered in it. I might have a hard time turning that down. What if stuff started to happen? Let's say you buy it and stuff started to happen. Is that going to scare you out? Uh, yes. Yes, that would <laughs> scare me out. Um, I don't know that I believe in all of that. But yes, if it happened, yes, that would scare me out. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah, yeah, me too. Without a doubt. I will say, I wouldn't, there was a house, you know, there's lots of houses that they've documented all the things that have happened throughout the years. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't buy that. No, of course not. If I went into it knowing that, hey, this, this, this has happened. Nobody's successfully lived in this house for more than six months right. because of... XYZ. No, I'm not even going to yeah. go there. And here's some documented proof, just in case you don't believe me. Yeah. Watch the tape. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm, I wouldn't play with that. But if it was just a house that like, hey, the last people who lived here, it, you know, it might also make a difference for me if it was like, like a home invasion where somebody was murdered versus like a, like a situation like you just described Judith Barcy, where it was like someone known to the victim. Cause right. I would think I don't want to live in a house where someone can just like break in and kill me. Right. But like, if it's somebody that, you know, is in my life or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know for some reason that feels less likely to happen to me. Yeah. But no matter where you move to, you're going to get your own security system and put brand new locks yeah. on. I know. I just, it's just. To know that, like, oh, somebody broke in here and 
murdered the entire family. That would freak me out. Yeah, but that can happen to anyone anywhere. Well, I know. (laughs) (laughs) Technicalities. I know that. (laughs) I'm just saying, like, to me, that idea is scarier than, like, you know, I married this abusive man who's going to kill. Because to me, that seems like something that will never happen to me. But, of course, I'm pretty sure that every woman who's ever been murdered by her husband probably thought she was safe. Yeah. So, you know. Anyway. Yeah. Hmm. Well, what would you do, listeners? Would you live in a house where you knew someone had been murdered? Would you live in a house where there was documented activity? Yeah, inquiring minds want to know. Let us know. Absolutely. And you can give us those answers at dollsanddoom at gmail.com or you can email us at or message us on facebook or follow us on instagram check out our facebook page yeah we upload those corresponding photos with these cases every friday on our instagram and facebook pages and leave us a review uh share us tell us tell your friends about us if you like us yeah (laughs) hit like subscribe yeah we'd love to bring you more content we appreciate you listening So thanks for tuning in. Absolutely. I'm your host, Cynthia. I'm your host, Paula. We're dolls and doom.